into the Easter season. And so we finished with Nehemiah last week, and so I want to take the next three weeks and I want to focus on the Easter story. And so it's going to be in three parts. And um, what I would like for us to do this morning is to look at a chapter. We're going to start in a, in a passage in 1 Corinthians. And the passage in 1 Corinthians is about the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, focuses on what they need to focus on and what his ministry should focus on. And here's what he says. He said, moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preach to you. So he's now going to define what is the gospel? What is the message? What is the good news that Jesus came to be uh, a part of? Which also you received and in which you stand and by which you are also saved. He said, this is the crux of everything that we are about. It's called the gospel. And that's what we want to look at for the next three weeks. And he says, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. And he is now going to define for us the gospel. He's going to define for us the message that is so important for each of us to understand. And here's what he says in the next verse. He goes on to say, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And here he defines it, that Christ had died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul focuses on three things. He focuses on the death of Christ for our sins, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And so in the course of the next three weeks, that's what we're going to look at. So this morning, we're going to look at the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Next week, we're going to look at his burial. And on Easter Sunday, we are going to look at the resurrection. So that is where we're going. So let me give you a little bit of background this morning as we start to talk about the crucifixion. You need to understand some things about the whole history of crucifixion as far as it relates to uh, the cross that we and the story that we know so well. Originally, uh, it did not crucifixion did not originate with the Romans. It actually originated with the Assyrians and with the Persians. The original idea behind crucifixion was twofold. One, it was to embarrass and to punish, and it served as an example to everybody around. And the original idea from with the Asians and the Persians. The original idea was it was not designed to kill. Um, they would often take a person and put them on a cross, and they would put uh, rope or, or stuff around their wrist to hold them up. And it was often done with slaves, and it was a way to tell everybody else, look, if you don't get in line, we're going to embarrass you, and we're going to hang you on a cross, and that's going to be you up there. So originally, the idea behind it was not to, to take a life, but rather to embarrass, to teach people a lesson. Uh, by the time we get to the Romans, uh, the Romans originally used it with that in mind. It was often used with the Assyrians and even the early Romans with prisoners um, or slaves. It then moved on to be for people who were considered rebels or criminals. 
By the time we get to the Roman deal, they originally started with the same idea. They started with the idea that we would hang somebody up there as a lesson to everybody else. And then they started to realize that, you know what, it's really an effective means of taking someone's life as well. And so there was a whole ritual that was involved in it. By the time the Romans, by the time Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the Romans had perfected this thing uh, down to an art. Um, they had learned a number of things and, and incorporated. And so there were certain ideas. If they wanted the person to stay there for a long time, they actually had invented ways to prolong the death. In some situations, we have historical accounts of people who hung on a cross for as long as three days uh, before they passed away um, because they had mastered that idea. And yet they had a, a way to end it very quickly if that's what they wanted to do. Uh, so when the, we get to the Roman time, which is the, 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 the time of, uh, of Christ, um, they, are, they are using this at an incredible level. Um, some of you know of the story of Spartacus. Um, in the battle with Spartacus, the, Roman, uh, the Romans crucified 6,000 people um, at, that, at that battle. In 7 AD, so Jesus would have been just a little child at this point, um, Various crucified 2,000 Jews in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, when we get to 70 AD with the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and Titus and the Romans, um, historians tell us that on average they crucified 500 people every day for a series of months. Now I say that to say this, you need to understand that while we look at the cross and the crucifixion as something unusual, in their world, this was very, very common. Um, we're in a world which when we put a criminal to death or we put someone to death, we, we try to make it humane and we try to make it um, easy and we don't want them to suffer and we have all of these things in place. In the Roman Dale, that was not part of the case. It was very public. It was very ugly. It was meant to make a statement. So by the time we get to the life of Jesus, you need to understand that people were, were used to seeing people hang on a cross. And there was a system to it. There was a whole series of things involved. So I want to walk a little bit through the crucifixion of Christ, and then we're going to look at a passage and we're going to talk about some application of it. So let's talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and let's understand the history behind it and how they would have done it and why and, and those kinds of things. When a criminal was convicted and sentenced to death, so Jesus and the two thieves, what would have happened is um, they would have, there would have been a pole and they would have tied their hands above their head like that and they would have beat them first. And so we know that that's what happens in the life of Jesus. They were beaten either with uh, cat or nine tails or they were beaten with sticks. The idea at that point was to inflict pain but not to kill. It was very, very important that they did not kill the person. The basic idea behind it was that they would beat them enough that it would, with the lashes and with the sticks and stuff like that, that it would break the skin and it would bleed. So right off the bat, you have someone who has lost blood um, is, the, is, is the point of it. We're, because what happens in crucifixion, the key to crucifixion is a person dies of, of a combination of, of things, but the two main things are Number one, they suffocate to death because they can't get air. And number two, the heart works to a point that it, it literally kind of implodes itself uh, because of the, 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 the taxing of the heart is so enormous. 
that it just can't keep up. And so um, one of the ways they start this process is with the scourging or the beating of whoever it was they were going to do. In the, in the story of Jesus, you find two things that are unusual that you don't normally find in this process. One of them is that they put a, a, a purple robe on him. Um, and they put a crown of thorns on him. This would have increased the amount of blood loss in the life of Jesus. Because you see, what happens is, as the, as, as the back is bleeding, and, and they were basically scourged or beaten from the neck to the top of the knees. And that was the area that they were, they were beaten in. Um, many of you have seen uh, The Passion of the Christ or movies about the crucifixion or things like that. Let me just preface it by saying this. As gruesome as those are, those are G-rated versions of what would have happened. Um, there is no way they could have physically put on screen um, the way, because often a person was stripped, um, often a person, and so in Jesus' case, they put this robe on. Well, what that would have done is, as the back started to bleed, it would have formed basically a scab. And then they go, and they, so the other two criminals, their back is starting to heal just a little bit, starting to scab over a little bit. Whereas in Jesus' situation, it starts to do that, and then they take the robe off, and it just reopens it all again. So by the time Jesus is actually leading away to go to the cross, um, there's a tremendous amount of blood loss even at that point. What they would do after a criminal was beaten is they would make them carry the cross. Um, some of you have seen issues of people carrying a cross like this. That's probably not what they would do. That's not, that was not the common way to do it. What they would often do is they would take the cross member up there and they would strap it, they would rope it to the person's, to the person's arms and they would carry that part out to the place of crucifixion. Going before them was often someone from Rome who carried a sign. And the sign usually had the name of the criminal and what they were accused of. So in the case of Jesus and the thieves, the thieves would have, there would have been a deal where their name was given and then what they had done, they had stolen. Because again, the idea was to punish, the idea was to teach. So the idea was when you walked up, you saw the sign over which you saw what that person did. Um, in Jesus' case, the sign was above. In some cases, they would put it down by the feet. Um, when you get the idea of crucifixion, you need to understand that it's not like the cross is, is 15 feet high and a person is way up there. They wanted you to be able to see it. They wanted you to be up close and personal. So often the crosses were very low to the ground so that people walking by would be reminded, don't do this. It was often on a main trail going in and out of a city so that everybody knew and everybody saw what was happening. In Jesus' situation, we know that as he's carrying the cross, he falls under the weight of it. And so a person by the name of Simon Cyrene, they grab him out of the crowd and they have Simon carry the cross. And so Simon, just a, a bystander of the day, ends up being pulled into this and he ends up carrying the cross to the place of crucifixion. There are a couple of ideas, a couple of different theories with regard to the crucifixion of Christ, and there are two main ideas. One idea is that the cross was similar to this. In this type of cross, the person would have laid down on the cross and they would have put um, nails in the wrist, not in the palms, but in the wrist. Um, and typically the archeology span from that period tells us there are about five to seven inch nails. It would have been put on the, on, on the wrist because that would handle the weight of the body. Um, 
if it was a cross similar to this, what would happen is they would, they, they would put that up and they would often drop it into a hole. And so the jarring of it literally would, would pull the, 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 the joints apart. Um, and then they would take the feet and they would cross them over and they would nail the feet to the cross. In some situations, they would also at that point take the sign and they would put it at the bottom um, so that, again, you could see it. They wanted to make sure you could know the name of that person and their crime. The other idea is that um, they would nail their hand or their wrist to the cross piece only. They would then let the cross piece up and set it on. So the crosses of that time were T's. Um, they would have like a T shape to them. And so they would, they, would, they would have it sit up there and they would drop it on there because crucifixion was so common and because they did it so often, um, again, you know, this was a, they had places of crucifixion. And, you know, there's a lot of work to pull a cross out of the ground and then put it back down. Well, let's just put up a pole and we just keep hanging cross pieces on it as we... Then what they would do is they would hang the cross piece on and then they would nail the feet uh, to the cross. <clears throat> as Rome got um, a little bit further along, if they wanted the person to stay on the cross for a long period of time, they would do one of two things. They would put a little foot rest um, on the bottom. Uh, when we made this cross, I put one on there just so you have idea. I don't think in the, in the situation of Christ it had it on there. Um, but we put this on here anyway. And what it was, was it was a way that they could rest their feet a little bit in order to push themselves up. All it did was prolong the death. In some situations, they would put that up around waist high so that it was kind of like a seat that they would sit on. But again, remember this. You've been beaten, so every time you push yourself up, the, your back rubs on the cross. Um, so it just inflicted more and more pain. The Roman people, if they wanted to extend the death, would often add those elements to a cross. Um, the problem is, in the Jewish world, um, it was considered a curse to hang on a tree. It was considered a curse to die that kind of death. Um, in the Jewish world, they demanded that, in the teachings of the Jews, they demanded that if you were executed for a crime, as a Jewish person, um, you were to be buried the day that you were executed. Um, and if it was a Sabbath, they would make sure that they had no one hanging on the cross. So what would happen is the, the soldiers, in order to hasten the death, would come along and break the legs of the person so they could no longer push themselves up and they would die pretty quickly. To confirm that they were dead, they would often take, and they would, they would take a, a spear and they would pierce the side of the criminal to make sure that the person was dead. Um, and at that point, the heart, because of it had been so overworked, would be enlarged, basically, uh, with the edema and everything else that came with it. And so that was the common Roman way of making sure. And in the course in the story of Jesus, we know that um, as, they, as they got closer to the Sabbath, as they got closer to making sure they had to get those bodies down, um, the uh, Roman soldiers came along to break his, break his legs, and they realized that he was already dead. Um, again, Jesus would have lost more blood than the other two thieves, uh, just simply because uh, the robe and the thorns alone would have added a dimension to it that they had not experienced. And so you have a very gruesome, a very um, uh, bloody death in, in, in our terminology as we look at it. And as gruesome as it is, you need to understand that in this day and time, that was not uncommon. Um, no one wanted to be associated with a cross. 
Um, our modern day equivalent would be um, when we put somebody to death and we, um, uh, we give them an injection in order to put them to death. And I don't know if you've ever seen, you've seen the tables that they lay the person on and they strap them to with their arms outstretched. Um, could you imagine me taking um, that, that table and making it a piece of jewelry and encouraging people in America to, to wear it? You know, you'd go, no one wants to be associated with that. Well, you need to understand that no one wanted to be associated with death on the cross. Um, in fact, um, we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about his burial. Um, you were not to be given a proper burial. Um, basically, people who were crucified, there was a shallow ditch that was dug, their body was thrown in it, it was covered up, um, they were forgotten. Um, and so that's the story that we have of Jesus, okay? And you're going, well, that ain't really, well, I, I get it, but we have to be realistic about exactly what happened and why. So I want to go to Luke this morning. I want to go to Luke chapter 23 with all of that in mind of what had transpired. And I want to look at Luke 23, and here's what it says. Now, it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And notice the response of the people that were around there. Going on, guys. It says, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's the story of the cross. That's the story that Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian people, says, this is the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. So I want to talk about the three events that this passage mentions. The first one, it says that the sun um, was darkened for three hours. Um, when you look at scripture and when you go through Genesis through Revelation, one of the things that you see is that uh, darkness has many meanings in Scripture. It has the idea of mourning. Um, it has the idea of judgment. It has the idea of evil. Um, so God is saying something by darkening the world for three hours. I'll tell you what I think he's saying. And I'll tell you how the timing in this, I think, plays out. Jesus has seven sayings from the cross, and one of them is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Many Bible theologians believe that as part of the cross, as part of the Easter story, the Bible is very clear in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us. There is a point at which Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, has to take upon him your sin and mine. And there are many people, many Bible theologians and scholars that believe that what happens is at this moment in history, God takes your sin and mine and the sins of the world and places them on Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. And at that moment <clears throat> in history, God the Father 
cannot look on God the Son. Martin Luther said, God forsaken of God. I cannot comprehend it. Because at that moment, what I believe happened is, God took the sins of the world and he placed them on Jesus Christ. And the world went dark. Because you see, at that moment, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to take your sin and mine. But in order to do that, he who knew no sin, he who was sinless, had to become sin for us. But you know what happened in the story of the Garden of Eden? When sin enters the picture, what happens? Man and God are separated. In the story of the cross, Jesus is the second Adam. What happens when he who knew no sin becomes sin for us? God has to look away. And so I believe that one of the things that happens at this moment in history that is so important for you and I to understand is that Jesus Christ takes our sin upon him and God the Father can no longer look on his only begotten Son of God. It also says that the veil of the temple was rent in two. Um, let me help you understand this a little bit. In the Old Testament, when you look at the temple and the tabernacle, the tabernacle originally, and then it develops into the temple, there were three main sections to it. There was the outer courtyard area that a lot of people could gather. There were still some restrictions out there. Then there was the holy area, or the holy place where the priests ministered, and then there was the holy of holies. So for a minute, let's just think of this building in terms of the tabernacle in three sections. So we have the lobby out there that everybody could gather in. And then we have this area out here where only the priests could be. They would, they, that's where they have the labor. That's where they'd make the sacrifices. That's where they would burn the offerings. Every, all the priests were involved in this out here. And then let's let this area represent the Holy of Holies. This was the dwelling place of God. This is the place where God dwelt over top of the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Old Testament, the priest, there's only one person who ever went into this place. And that was the high priest, and he only went in one time a year. On the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make all of his sacrifices. He would then get ready to make a sacrifice for the children of Israel in order to say that God had forgiven their sins for the year, and they could go on to the next year, and they had a whole scapegoat ceremony, and they had all kinds of things. But at one point, what would happen is the priest would take the blood from the altar, the high priest. He would then walk past the veil when there was a big curtain here. I'll talk about that in a second. He would go past the veil of the curtain. He would come into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat. He would make atonement for the, the sins of Israel. He would then walk out. And if he walked out, they knew God had accepted their sacrifice. So it was a big deal when he walked past that curtain, that whether or not he's coming back out on the other side. Because this was such a holy place, they would tie a rope around his waist because, again, he was representing the most holy person in all of Israel. And if God didn't accept the sacrifice and took his life, who, who in Israel was holy enough to walk past that curtain and go get him? So the idea was, you know what, if he dies in there, if God strikes him dead, we've got to get his carcass out. So they'd tie a rope around him so they could haul him out, and then Israel would go, now what do we do? You know, Because this was a big deal. Now, you can imagine, if you thought that this was the dwelling place of God and no one can see God and live, if you thought that this was where God dwelt, uh, how sure would you be that nobody could get past that? How sure would you be that wind couldn't come by and like blow the curtain open and everybody get a little peek inside? Um, history tells us that the curtain in the, between the holy place and the holy of holies was an inch thick. 
They tell us that two team of oxen pulling it apart could not tear it. This was a massive thing. I mean, you, you, you just think about this for a second. You know what a three-quarter inch piece of plywood weighs as a four-by-eight sheet? Can you imagine a curtain of material an inch thick and tall and wide? So you can imagine how massive this thing is. And the text says that when Jesus is on the cross and the world goes dark, that God, in essence, it's as if God took his hand and split that thing right down the middle. Now, let's just say, for instance, you're a priest out there doing your thing that day. And all of a sudden, you glance over, and the curtain is now wide open. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, first of all, you fear for your life. Secondly, you do whatever you can to get that thing blocked up so nobody gets to look in there again. But you see, God is very specific on why he does what he does. And what God is saying is, because of the, the, what Jesus Christ has done, no more do you have to have a mediator between you and God. No more do you have to go to a priest in order to go to God. Because up until that point, the only person who could come in here, the only person who could come in here was the high priest. Even the priest couldn't go in there. Only the high priest. And when God splits that curtain, what he is saying is this. Because of Jesus Christ, your great high priest, you, putting your faith and trust in Christ, this is what Hebrews says, can now come boldly into his presence. There is nothing blocking you to getting to God. Nothing. And what you need to understand is when Jesus dies on the cross and God takes that curtain and splits it down the middle and opens that thing up, what he is saying to the world, what he is saying to the Jewish people is, no one has to stay away from me anymore. No one has to go through somebody else. You want to go through somebody to get to God? It's Jesus Christ. Because of what he's done, the curtain is wide open. You and I can come boldly into his presence. You need to think about that for a minute. Okay, do you understand if you would have lived 2,000 years ago, 21, 22, 2300 years ago? You had to go to a priest to get to God? You had to go to somebody else who could mediate for you between you and God? But if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you need to understand this. Hebrews teaches us, the book of Hebrews teaches us that you and I, 24-7, can boldly go into the presence of God with anything. We don't have to go through a whole bunch of ceremony. We don't have to go through. We can boldly go into the presence of God and say, Lord, this is what is important in my life. This is what is heavy on my heart. God, this is what I need from you today. And we couldn't have done that until Christ died on the cross. But he provided a way whereas by you and I have access to God. And then he ends by saying, uh, guys, go back to that, that um, passage. He ends by saying this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, this is an interesting saying. I mean, this is Jesus' last words. And they're very significant because if you go back in the Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 31, here's what you will, hear, here's what you will find. David, in this prayer talking about God, says, Father, into thy hands I commend my... Or it says, into your hands I commend my spirit. Um, literally, let me give you a little, little literally what what it says. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Many of you know those little kids, you remember the little song, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul. You remember that little thing, we, that little diddly that we teach kids? I'm not saying it's the best theology, but you know, we, we teach them that. You know, you know how that goes? In the Jewish world, this prayer of David was kind of their little Jewish diddly at the end of the day. Into 
literally what it says is, into your hand I commit my spirit. Kind of a, for some Jewish people, it's kind of a daily idea. At the end of a the day, they say, Lord, I, you know, into your hand I commit my spirit. What happens is, when Jesus is on the cross, he goes back and he says this, but he adds something. What word does he add? Look at it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, Abba, Father. I need to understand, this is significant. Because up until now, Jesus has used this term before. John 14, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Jesus has used this idea, but now on the cross, as the last thing that he says, the last words out of his mouth are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know what he's saying? I've done everything you asked me to do. I came to this world voluntarily. I lived my life sinlessly. I went to the cross willingly. And now he gives up his life. No man takes it from him. And the way that we know he gave it up is because this is what he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. But he says, Father, because here's what's so important. It is not about religion. It is not about a system. It is about a relationship. And on the cross, he focuses it on that idea that God is Father. And you need to understand, for a Jewish person, this was such a foreign concept. God was high, far off, couldn't be touched, had to go through the priest to get to him. God was this great, big, huge thing way off in the distance. It was not personal. And yet Jesus on the cross says, I want you to understand, it is personal. He has made a way for your sins to be forgiven. I would do that. Let me explain to you about it, all about a loving God. A loving God came to this earth and went on a cross. That's what he did. A loving God provided a way for you to have eternal life. A loving God took all of, his, all of your sin upon him because he loved you that much. That's what a loving God did. You say, well, you know, I just think God should let everybody in. No, God can't because of sin. Your sin has to be taken care of. Either you pay for it, or you accept Jesus Christ's gift of the cross and what he did to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it because God is a righteous judge as well. And that is important for us to understand. The crux of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. I do need to understand that's the first thing that he did. And it is so important for us to understand that. And you go, well, you know, you're talking about that heaven hell thing. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you believe in a heaven, then you have to believe in a hell. You can't say, well, you know, I just believe in heaven and that, you know, everybody goes there. Well, you know what that bit, you know what we call that? Earth. Right? I mean, everybody's here. Good, bad, and ugly. I'm sorry, but Jesus didn't go to the cross so we could do all this all over again. He did it to take care of sin. So that sin doesn't separate us from God. What happened? Adam and Eve in the garden. The first time sin comes in, man has to go away. Because God and sin can't dwell together. What happens on the cross? The earth goes dark. Why? Because God can't look upon sin. His own son. That's what he did for you. 
You go, I can't believe God would like prepare a place like hell for people. Then you don't know your Bible. Hell was never prepared for people. Satan and his cohorts and a third of the angelic host came to a point where they said, God, we don't want anything. We don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. And God said, well, you can't live with us anymore then. So he prepared a place for him. You want to be apart from me? You don't want anything to do with me? Fine. Here's your place now. So what do you do with somebody who spends their entire life on this earth and says, I don't want anything to do with him? Well, there's a place for you to join all of the other angels. You go, well, maybe then God will give me a second chance. Every breath you take and every day you live is a second chance. How many second chances does God have to give you? If you're here this morning and you're breathing, then I'm here to tell you this morning, it is an opportunity for you to trust Christ instead of depending on your own for your sin and your salvation. You say, well, you know, I just think, you know, a loving God, this is what a loving God did. This is what a loving God did. And if you reject it, God on the basis of his word Jesus, on the basis of his word, has to reject you too. And Jesus taught that. He said, in that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, I did this, and I tried this, and I did this, and I did this. And I will say, I don't know you. It's not personal. You haven't put your faith and trust in me. And that's why it is so important that we do that. For those of you who are believers here this morning, you need to understand. Because of the cross... Whatever stuff you have going on right now, whatever burden you have, whatever thing that's got you down or what's got you, whatever, you have the opportunity to go boldly into the throne of God and share it with him. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible privilege to be able to take anything that comes in our our lives. Because you see, the thing about the cross that you come to understand is it's personal. It's not about jumping through the hoops of a church. Many of you have had experiences, good and bad, with religion or with church. That's not what it's about. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about the fact that I know that that day comes that I stand before God. And he looks at me and says, all right, Jim, give me one reason. One reason that you ought to be with me for eternity. I'm not going to look at him and go, well, you know, I pastored for a long time, and you should have seen the people you gave me to pastor. (laughs) You know, you put me in Iowa, God. I'm not saying that. You know, I'd say, you know, thanks for letting me pastor those people. It was a blast. But I'm going to point to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to say, he died on the cross. He took my sins. The only reason The only reason I should spend eternity with you is because I trust him and I have put my faith and trust in him. And he said he'd forgive my sin. He said he would take take away my sin and move it as far as the east is from the west, as far as the depths of the deepest sea. He took care of my sin. I am, and we're going to talk about this next after Easter. We're getting the book of Ephesians and here's what you're going to find. He has already seated us in heaven with Christ. That's why. Because of the cross. And if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, please understand, it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Christ. 
it's about not about you paying for your sin. It's about accepting Christ paying for your sin. For me, at 16 years old, prayed sitting in a room with a bunch of kids. All I did was say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. No, I can't take care of my sin on my own. As best as I know how, I'm putting my faith and trust in you and you alone. And at that moment, it became personal and it became real. And I stand here today with the assurance of my salvation, not because of, not because of what I've done, but because of what he did. And if you don't have that assurance this morning, please talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody. Because every breath you have is one more opportunity, but there's coming a day when you will not take another breath. And you will not get another chance. And if you're here this morning and you have put your faith and trust in Christ, please understand, salvation is free. But that doesn't mean it's cheap. It came at a great cost because of a Savior who has a great love for you. And there are days that I get up, I don't even love me, so why God would is beyond me. But I'm just so thankful that he did. As he said, God so loved the world that he gave, that whosoever, that means anybody, believes in him, shall have eternal life. Not will, not maybe, not questionable, not if you do A, B, and C, will have, you can know. So I end this morning with this. I end with the idea that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. It means that we don't have to pay for our sin when we place our faith and trust in him. It means that I now have direct access to God. And it means that I can have a personal relationship with God. And it doesn't have to be about religion or systems. Instead, it's personal. And it is our prayer as you head into this Easter season that you go in with the assurance that Jesus died for your sins, and you have embraced and accepted it. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, it is so simple, and yet, Lord, it involves so much. Lord, may we live in such a way this week that people would see Christ in us. Lord, for those who may not have embraced the cross, for those, Lord, who may be depending on something else, would you help them to understand, Lord, that you are the only way, the only truth, the only life. There's no other way to you. And Lord, we look forward to the day of seeing you face to face. It is not something we fear. Rather, Lord, it is something that we anticipate and we look forward to. And we just ask that until that day, people see Christ in all that we do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand together and we'll